episode 220 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 10th of March, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Top of the morning to you. Graham. Bonsoir. And Will. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it is top of the morning for me. We're recording early in the day and a few days early. I don't know what's going on. So if things happen over the weekend and we haven't talked about them, you know why. So anyway, let's do some news. The first one, Flathub in 2023. This is a post by Robert McQueen, and he sets out quite a big vision for Flathub's future success, working together with growing people, KDE people, community people, raising $250,000 worth of sponsorships is the goal, proper governance, getting verified apps and proper payment support for subscription payments and stuff. Very much grand plans. I know you lot don't really care about flat packs, but uh, like I was telling you a couple of weeks ago, Flatpak has won, and this proves it. I've got flat packs. I've got snaps too. I've got flat packs. I have neither flat packs nor snaps. Live in the future, Will. Come on, Jesus. I shan't. One of uh, Robert's assertions in his article is that Flatpak and, to an extension, I suppose, Snap, go towards solving, in his words, the largest technical issue which has held back the mainstream growth and acceptance of Linux on the desktop for the past 25 years, namely the difficulty for app developers to publish their work in a way that makes it easy for people to discover. Windows has only had an app store built into it for like the last five or six years, and that managed just fine. And, you know, Debian has managed just fine for quite a long time. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think that that is necessarily the main reason that Linux has not been a massive success on the desktop for the last 25 years. I mean, in their defense, when I first installed Linux, whenever it was in the late 90s, I did expect to be able to download an .exe and just run it. And I was pretty shocked and culturally shocked that I couldn't. And I suppose that's what they're referencing there. Of course, it's become more formalized into app stores and everything else. But Linux has struggled, not struggled, it's always done it differently, and it's not as immediate if you come from Windows. You just have to get your head around it. It is good that they're getting KDE people as well as GNOME people involved, because Flatpak and Flathub is sort of seen as a bit of a GNOME thing to a lot of people, I think. Because of like everybody involved in it was a GNOME person at the start. <laughs> But the idea of it was always to be independent, though. Yeah, and but I, like it's like a lot of these things that start off in Gnomeland, they start off as a great idea and then be very gnomish and, oh yeah, why does nobody want to join this thing? It's like, I don't know. I'm just obviously going to be counter-gnome anyway, but I'm happy to see that KDE is involved in this and other people too, because I, I was very sceptical about it. Uh, the only reason, in fairness, that I have... Flatpak install is for some game stuff. One of them happens to be a thing called Grape Juice, which has pulled down four Mesa packages that are the same, two free desktop platforms that are the same. I mean, I'm sure there's version differences between them, but I just hate this whole way of doing software. It just looks ugly as anything. Maybe they can work on this too, because I just, I just don't care about it enough, but I do like what my distro does. So I do worry that by putting everything into a big bucket for every application we're going to end up at a right mess i don't want to criticize flathub but you've raised an interesting point and that post mentions that there's already 88.3 terabytes served via the cdn each day and how much must that cost and how much is it going to cost if they quadruple its popularity how can we maintain it as a community that that's a big challenge as well well through sponsorships i think 
is how the bandwidth bill is going to be paid. Is it going to be paid with that Silicon Valley bank gone bust? (laughs) (laughs) I started out quite negatively on this story, but I will say that anything which makes it easier to get applications to users in an easy to consume manner can only be good news for Linux overall. So however it is that they work out to pay for it via sponsorship or via people paying for applications or whatever, I think it's got to be good overall. So good luck. That sounds a bit like The Godfather where he says, like, (laughs) our business interests aren't in conflict, so good luck to you sort of thing. (laughs) Because you're not going to be using fat. I mean, I don't really use fat packs either or snaps if I can avoid it. It feels to me like a sort of last resort, really. Like, if I can't get something from the repo, that's when I'll start looking Mm. for a flat pack or a snap. Same. Or if the tool happens to be sandbox away from stuff like, say, Telegram, for instance, uh, I'm not entirely keen on running that. I used to run it straight from the binary that you could download, but it never felt right. And I'd like to see more concentration on making things secure that way like locking things so they just can't do anything because I don't really trust any of them fully to do that just at the moment. Maybe they do and maybe they've improved, but I still am a bit unsure of it. Not that it makes a package any better. I mean, a package is going to be worse probably, but there's nothing worse than sort of false security as well. Where do you stand on downloading a statically compiled binary? From where? Random GitHub page. Oh, I really don't like that at all. The problem is, if you're going to take some source code, are you going to read the source code and then are you going to compile it? But equally, I wouldn't. Anybody who has a web page that has a curl into bash, <laughs> that's the immediate symbol for don't touch it with a barge pole. Mm. And I know people would constantly tell us that, oh, all the apps don't get checked in a repo. Fine. But at least there's a bit of a hierarchy of what went in. It's in a change config. And then what state it was in there. Whereas if you're starting to manage all that yourself from whatever applications you've installed, when mm. I just find that it's far more, you know, Windows world where, oh, well, that's it. I've Trojan my machine again. <laughs> Shit. Mm. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm okay with it. I think I do a little bit of, I say due diligence. It's not very diligent. I mean, like, <laughs> look, read the web page. Oh, it's got to read me. Okay. But I'm, I'm kind of okay with it. I think check the developer out is probably the more pertinent thing where it's like have this has this person been accused of being a lunatic at some point and <laughs> wiping stuff out if not probably okay if i see like a debian repo download that you can add a repo to your machine i somehow inherently trust that more and that's probably a greater risk because you know you're giving this this thing capability of downloading pretty much anything so oh i, I don't know it's, it's such a, a minefield of potential foot guns that I'm just arguing myself into saying that snaps and flat packs really are a better solution. Well, the big argument that I've always heard is that you're not giving them root. Whereas if you install something the traditional way, you are briefly giving it root on your machine when it installs. Mm. I don't think there's a single one that I've installed that it hasn't had to be unconfined or classical or something in some sort of shape or manner or absolutely broken because you can't access any files that you need to access without giving it some sort of extra network resources. Yeah, but you're conflating giving it access to your files with giving it root there. But I mean, at what point does root matter if all your files of your own personal stuff are wiped or stolen or encrypted? I mean, 
let's face it, if you lose all your files in your home folder, I mean, what else is on that machine that you give a shit about? Mm. Nothing. That is the most important thing is your data. Otherwise, it's just an ISO build away of a new install. That's why I don't fully know what they're trying to solve with some of the stuff they're doing when it can access your home folder. Because frankly, there's no other data on my machine really bar out on the ZFS storage for other stuff that is important to me because the home folder's got all my stuff, all my emails, all my... SSH keys. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Can it read .SSH? Snap can't. Oh, gauntlet down to you, Flathub. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's great that we have competition and I don't want to speak on behalf of Snap, but I do publish a few Snaps for my own reasons because I find them useful. And one of them is YT DLP, the YouTube kind of downloader. And I really like having that in a container. I really like having tools like that in a way that can't interfere with the rest of the system in a controlled environment, in a way I don't have to think about. And I think that's where I've found I've kept those things around. Same for Flat Pack 2, where I don't otherwise with other things, which I know are just going to touch everything anyway. The permissions thing, I don't think we've solved it at a desktop level, you know, at a user interface level. That's what makes it so difficult for everyone that's trying to solve this problem. Like I heard George talking about immutable OSs on Linux After Dark, the last episode. and. Again, I don't know what it's trying to solve because I don't want my desktop to be like my phone. Mm. And I definitely don't want to be doing a restart every time I install a package. And it'd be great if everything's getting installed from flat packs or whatever. But again, my data is the important bit and that's not going to be protected potentially by that. Like Maybe it will be made a lockdown far more, but still, what is it for really? Like, I, yes, FlatHub in its own sense might be useful, but I would think of it more for third-party stuff. I really don't want all of my KD apps to come down through FlatHub. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, for me, Snap and Flatpak is useful for proprietary software that I don't really trust. Like, if I'm going to install Zoom, I'll get the Snap of it. Or something so bleeding-edge that it requires, you know, half of your OS to have been upgraded to the latest bleeding-edge release to get it going. And then, yeah, okay, I can try it in Flatpak or Snap. Hmm until it's in the repo because then i know it's blessed mm. that's and again yes probably inaccurate it isn't really blessed it's but it's more blessed than sitting in a flat pack is anyway because they're not even getting involved in the whole maintenance that the work that a distro does to maintain the whole life cycle of the os is huge and i don't think that's going to make it any better if flathub exists it probably might make it worse because people will treat the os as less important because, oh, I get all my software from here. This really has just turned into old men <laughs> yelling at cloud. Old correct men yelling at cloud, yes. <laughs> no, but I mean, I can see the advantages in it because it's my day job, but I really don't want to say. I don't want to sound like a shill for it. But in theory, not talking about snaps specifically, there are like, you guys are really keen on ZFS. And in a way, Containerized apps have the same thing. You can install multiple versions at the same time. You can have all your config files in one environment. If you remove something, you can be sure you've removed absolutely everything it's touched. You can roll back, you can roll forward, you can take a snapshot of a state, and you can do that within the framework. I'm talking generically rather than depending on the app people to build this in through an API or something. You get that. So I guess thinking about package management as a file system, I, I do think it's the way to go. I don't think it's an old man thing. 
Maybe. <laughs> but it also means that lazy developers could get away with not updating a whole lot of security bugs by going, oh, it's all in a container, it's safer there. And also, the app developer can be lazy because in the dev world, the underlying library that's got the security issue in it gets fixed by somebody who knows what they're doing. In the snap world, you just lols, I didn't update it. <laughs> but at least it's con- you know it's containerized, so... Maybe that doesn't matter. Fingers crossed. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. There's a bit of a confusing one here. F-Droid has got a new repository format for faster and smaller updates. And there's a post by Torsten of F-Droid where he says, we just released version 1.16. And uh, I haven't got 1.16. I've still got 1.15. Let me give you a tip there's a sneaky bit with the Android app. I think there's an extra blessing step that they give that. But what you do is you go into the uh, application and then go to the more button. And then there's a versions link at the bottom. And if you're like me, I'm on 116.1. And you can pick extra stuff. You can see all the alpha releases and stuff like that. But I still see suggested is 115.6. But I just like to live in the future. So I clearly picked the other one. I never go to an alpha, but I... I sometimes jump to the releases earlier. Like, uh, I think it was the 12th of February when 1.16 was out. And uh, the 1st of March, it came out with a one release, but they haven't been sort of flicked to be the one that they think normal people should use. I don't know what they base that on, to be quite honest, but I guess maybe this data change was probably something that they just wanted smaller numbers to have. All right, fair enough. But anyway, the point of this is that instead of downloading a massive file every time to see what's changed for your updates, they're going to be a lot cleverer about it and make it much smaller and faster. Yeah, I think that's great because it can really take quite a while. Like on my phone, I think it's at least a couple of minutes to kind of process through everything. And as it says, like every application has to churn through this huge amount of data each time to check versions and changes and it would be really nice to see that change because it's gone for, it's like what 33 megabytes uncompressed for the repo so i mean that's a huge amount of stuff in there yeah and that's just the index of what's in the repo yeah so good to see especially for the likes of failing who rely on it because you have no other choice <laughs> i don't want to have any other choice this is my choice i have made okay and it's a good choice well i like more choice so i have the play store and f droid sucker it's been 20 years since the SCO versus IBM lawsuit. Do you feel old or what? Yes, <laughs> in many ways. Even getting out of bed, I feel old. <laughs> I've a knee injury since August and it won't go away. 
We can link to a piece on the LWN that you found, Fadim, that talks about the history of this. And I must admit, I'd forgotten quite a lot of the details. I had moved from Dublin off to Glasgow at the end of 2002. And I was well into my, I guess, start of my career at that point and uh, trying to get very Windows-centric places to start using Linux. It was a, a real struggle back then, and this came along. And it was a, oh, Linux is up to no good, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, shop, it's a lot of shite. And they're like, oh, I don't know. This big company seems to think not. And you're like, fuck's sake. And then for years, you could either sit there at all the things they'd unpick, and every time, like, the bloody alien would come back out of the hatch somewhere, and you'd be like, oh, fucking hell, what have they found now? It's something else. And... It all came down to absolute, utter and complete bullshit. Like, it was almost a perfect advertising campaign. You kind of wonder, if it didn't exist, would we actually be as popular as it turned out to be? Like, did this actually get people's more attention and go, well, why, if they're having a big lawsuit about it, it must be important. And then, you know, anybody with any sense looking at any of the stuff that Grocklaw used to do was just amazing. Mm. You just go, it's a complete shite case. But there's always that scary point where you think, yeah, in our heads, it seems like it's a complete no-brainer, but you never know with the legal system. Well, Jonathan Corbett in this article makes the point that we wouldn't be in such a good position now in terms of the legal stuff without this. It sort of brought everyone together and shored up the legal position. So although it was a shit thing that happened, this company, Skaru, trying to claim that they had the copyright for Unix and Linux had infringed upon it, which, as you say, turned out to be bullshit, it ultimately was good for the whole Linux and free software open source ecosystem. And let's not forget where they got the money to keep that case going from. Indeed. That was my my main memory of that whole situation. I was uh, via the register because that was huge. But I mean, it's still big now, but it was huge back in, in those days. And the register, from what I remember, had a very interesting take on Microsoft buying Linux licenses from SCO and just, you know, nudge, 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 wink, wink kind of thing. Oh, really, really dodgy. And that is a big part of why you still don't trust Microsoft, isn't it, Phoenix? Well, yeah, in a way, because, I mean, (laughs) this is very much burnt into me at a very start of doing stuff where literally all the time it would come up. Even in jokes, oh, look what you're up to now. <laughs> Who's, who else code have you stolen? <laughs> and they almost have to have as many years being evil as they do being good before they can balance that out as far as I'm concerned. It's funny, though, that uh, the fellow who was responsible for all this, Dar McBride, filed for bankruptcy in 2020. Real shame. Real shame. <laughs> Hope he didn't have all his money in Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably going to be old news by the time this comes out on Monday night. Or maybe it'll be even worse. Maybe the whole industry will have just totally collapsed and we're talking about all this shit that's totally irrelevant. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a a greater than zero chance of that happening. Maybe this won't even reach people. There won't be an internet to put it on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we can send tapes to people if they send them a stamp addressed envelope. Yeah, W127RJ. Is that Blue Peter or something? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was, Blue Peter. <laughs> You're also middle class. As long as it's not, Jim will fix it. <laughs> <laughs> the quest for Netflix on Asahi Linux. This is a post by David Buchanan, who goes into the details of how he got Widevine DRM working on Asahi Linux. Asahi, of course, is the distro that you can run on Apple Silicon Macs. 
And Jesus Christ, this is such a painful post to read. All of the shit that he had to jump through to get it to work. And really, it wasn't even for Netflix, because he basically says that he torrents stuff instead. It was more for Spotify, which needs the same DRM bullshit. And it's just amazing that although you can get it to work on x86 Linux relatively easily, and on some ARM Linux, because of the Raspberry Pi and stuff, it's just almost impossible on the M1 Max, but he just would not take no for an answer. And talk about scratching an itch. I don't know how he had the patience to do this. It's a fascinating read, all of the the steps. You think, ah, oh, that's it. We've cracked it this time. We found it. Oh, no, wait, there's another one. And that goes on oh, step after step after step. It's quite funny to read through the, the whole story and all of the pitfalls and problems and hacky workarounds and quite an extraordinary outcome. I um, read some of the comments on Hacker News, which was interesting because I hadn't realised, I should have realised that Widevine had been cracked because a lot of the kind of things that are available with this kind of DRM are actually available what seems to be an incredible quality as soon as they become available to stream. <laughs> I've never thought about that. But the way that it's been cracked has been kind of kept relatively secret so that it's not patched so that these people can keep on doing that, which is another interesting thing. But, of course, the comment thread brought up links to all of the code to do it, so <sighs> I don't know how long I'll last for. But that would have been the easier way to go, I suppose. But he specifically didn't want to break DMCA rules. He wanted to do it as legally as possible. Yeah, I, I totally understand it. I mean, I pay for Spotify. I have done for a long time, but I use all kinds of ways to get around not using their app, which is awful on Linux. And I hate being recommended podcasts. So I do other things. Hate being recommended podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Spotify recommended podcasts specifically. Fucking Joe Rogan. <laughs> I've heard from people who've discovered our show through that, so uh, let's not talk too much <laughs> shit on it. I have never listened to a podcast on Spotify, not once, so there is absolutely no reason for them to ever recommend one to me. Fair enough. Well, towards the bottom of the post, David put in a meme that you wouldn't download a car meme, and it's uh, <laughs> you wouldn't pay for 4K Netflix and then download a Chromebook recovery image in order to extract the ARCH64 Widevine CDM blobs and then patch in support for 16K pages and apply miscellaneous glibc <laughs> combat workarounds and then spoof your user agent and install a browser extension to unlock HD resolutions to legally watch your media in only 1080p. <laughs> Genius. Ah, uh, it's pretty cool. But really, hats off to him. This is mm. just a, a, an exercise in extreme patience and problem solving and what Linux and open source is all about, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. 
So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thanks to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. And if you want to join one of the communities, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash community. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. The first one, Plasma 6 kickoff and outline fixes. Yeah, and as Nate goes in, he says, that, you know, this is years of prior work that has gone into making, well, hopefully by the end of this year, Plasma 6 a reality. And uh, there's a lot of people that have done that. And it's it's great to see this is kind of sort of their moment now where it's actually going to come to fruition. And fingers crossed it goes well. Another thing is some of the work that's still going on on 527. If you're unlucky like me, I have a nasty bug, which means I have to restart every day where I start getting these horrible black windows. But I was very appreciative of the help I got from people who hopped in to uh, get me logging bugs for it and stuff. And it's been worked on and supposedly by Monday, maybe for 27.3, it might be fixed. So we'll have to see. But they've been doing loads of work anyway. And that option that we talked about last time where the dark theme mode where they had a a white edge that people complained about well it's kde and of course there's loads of options now so you'll be able to pick whether you want to offer on or the size of it or how intense it is and uh, i think that's only good let people choose what they want to do but there's a whole lot of stuff going in for more robust multi-screen stuff as well and uh, it's great to see that they are fixing that because it has been a bit of a bane for the past while getting desktops to pop up applications where you want them to be and things like that. So fingers crossed. All right. And zooming in and out with Wayland. Yeah, I thought that's quite cool. It's a feature that's not fully available just yet, but it can be enabled really easily in the in the shortcuts. And it's essentially meta control or Windows key control and uh, the scroll button on your mouse to zoom in and out. And uh, it's a really cool feature, probably especially for people who might have difficulty with vision. It's probably a great way to get in or any other People look to zoom in on pathetic high DPI screens. All right, apps in the Microsoft Store tutorial. Yeah, Nate in his automation section has a couple of links there. One of them is a tutorial for uploading applications to a Microsoft Store. And I would say if you're an open source application, you can make money out of those suckers. Go for it. I think that's a great idea. Definitely agree on that one. 
And uh, he also has one then for a code map, which has been produced of all the various parts of Plasma and where you can get to them. And I think that's really cool because it is a quite complicated system and it's nice to see that. So there's extra stuff there as well. So enjoy. You're really stretching this one. The Kubuntu manual has had an update. Well, I think this is quite good. It's got quite useful information and it's nice to see. And it's a great way for helping people out who are not used to starting off with KD and it might give them just the bits and pieces that they need to get going. It's pretty good. And it's nice to see the Kubuntu project get a bit of a mention as well. So yeah, no, I think that's okay. Fair enough. And KDE for scientists. Yeah, I really like this page. So they've been doing this this year where they've had the various other things, you know, for kids and things like that. And this is a whole load of applications that are available. Lab plot, Cantor, They've given examples of the Synchrotron in Barcelona that uses KDE. Uh, NASA Insight Lander used KDE4, funnily enough, which is quite weird. Uh, probably typical NASA standardized it five years ago or something. There's Awkward, which is a thing for the statistical language R. There's KSTARS. And then there's KBibitex, which is a reference management engine that I've heard people talking about how that can be quite a expensive and annoying sort of area for searching for references to like medical journals and things like that. So that's quite cool and it's presented in a really nice way and i think it really sells the desktop as a really good scientific development tool that said there is a photo of that synchrotron in barcelona and uh, that looks suspiciously like debian and xfce to me i think they wouldn't make that kind of mistake on the kd.org joe and you're just clutching at straws it's a photo from the 70s (laughs) okay (laughs) it's a picture in a frame (laughs) all right pim update yeah like to always talk about this one but these guys have a bit of a celebration in hand the fact that they're gonna have their first in-person sprint in Toulouse on the first and second april covid absolutely wiped out that for the last few years so it's great that they're able to get back together and qt6 is going to be a big part of that the the stuff that they were hoping to work on this year about the automation so the ktex add-on which is like things like grammar checking machine learning translations all that type of stuff that is going to become a plugin and part of frameworks that's going to be available for every other application that uses it and that's really cool so the work gets done once it's in the framework everybody gets to benefit there's also a huge update for getting the google contacts and calendar fixed because that was broken for a long time because of Google messing around with stuff, no doubt. And that has been fixed. So great work being done there. And there's some proposals for Google Summer Code. So if you are of that ability to join in, there's been great uptake in that. And maybe there's some cool projects that our people could get on board with there. And uh, he also talks about K-Itinery, where there's a cool new feature of on-train data in Germany. All these magical public transport systems where you can get data about the train and then data on the train about where it is Uh, like we're having an argument over here about extending a rail track slightly outside dublin and it's just carnage data on trains just stop all right and you finally learned to draw dynamic figures with creta thanks to this great tutorial video the video is absolutely amazing he also manages to give brushes and sample stuff and 3D images he can pull around to do forms. Not a chance in hell could I even do his quick warm-up two-minute sketches. But if you're into art, it's just worth watching for the amazing skill involved. And if you can do art, I think you'll agree that Credit could be a really good tool to use for it. So pretty sweet. All right, and a quick reminder to submit your talks for Academy 2023. Yeah, so deadline is uh, call for papers at the end of March 30th. And yeah, if you can and do, go for it. Right, well, as usual, links to everything in the show notes. We better get out of here then. 
We'll be back next week when we'll have some discoveries and some feedback, probably. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.